All right, I'm going to start the recording again, too. So welcome to our study of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The revelation, as it says, is given to Jesus from God the Father, and Jesus passed it along to John the Revelator, and he passed it on to us. I'm going to just read uh, part of the seven letters to the churches, which are found in the second and third chapter of the Revelation. Jesus is speaking. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, all of these letters which follow to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor have the same pattern. So we're, we're going to look at this. But I want to just give you a little, little bit of a background here. The letters apply, first of all, they apply to seven specific churches at the end of the first century, somewhere around 90 A.D. So we're into the second generation of believers in these churches, maybe even the third generation. And uh, as you can tell from this letter, there was a, a little bit of a downturn spiritually. You have lost your first love, the passion that they had for the Lord at first as time was passing by. Yet there were many good things. These churches were growing up in an urban environment, but um, you shouldn't think um, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, there weren't any urban centers like that in the world except maybe Rome. Um, You know, most of these towns were were towns of 25 to 50,000, so this could be not Asia Minor, it could be central Nebraska. It's just... This is not such a, such a foreign environment when it comes to the size of things. So one way to understand these letters is very much historically. We're looking at a particular slice of history, and these churches which had been planted by the apostles were now into their second or third generation. Another way to understand these letters is historically, that these letters apply to different types of churches throughout history. At any given time in history, including today, we will find churches that are deserving of the same commendations and condemnations and exhortations as those given to specific churches in Asia Minor. So we can probably find uh, one of these seven churches that is the most similar to Berean Bible Church of Hastings, Nebraska. And uh, we're not going to do this, but it's something that we could do And uh, I I went to all the trouble once to spend a lot of time devising a a checklist, a test that you could take, 
And uh, at the end of it, you'd, you'd know which church uh, you thought this church identified with most closely. So having teased you with that, we're not going to do that. That's not what we're going to try. But it's kind of a fun thing to do. And, and I think there's a lot, of, a lot to be said for that. I, I think the point of Jesus doing this revelation to these seven churches and talking to them is that he's talking about problems that are going to crop up in every period of history. Now, the third way to understand these letters has the, I'd say, they're the, the least um, likely reason, but this could be also prophecy. There isn't anything in the text that tells us that's the intent of this, but um, a, a lot of preachers like to do this. Uh, Tim LaHaye did it in a book that was out, maybe some of you read that, saying that the, the letters apply to different eras of church history. So Ephesus would be from about 33 to 100 AD, the apostolic age, Smyrna would be the martyr's age during the times of the, of the great persecutions from about 100 to 300 AD. Uh, Pergamum would be the imperial church after uh, uh, the time of Constantine, which I think was in 316, something like that, that he made Christianity the religion of the empire. So you have the imperial church from 300 to 500 AD. And then uh, the Roman church, Thyatira, from 500 to 1500 A.D. Um, and this, is, this is real interesting because what happened to the Orthodox Church in that? The, the, the Roman Church and the Orthodox Church split the Eastern and the Western Church in the year 1000 A.D. and went their separate directions. And there's some interesting differences which this particular interpretation kind of leaves out. And then you get Sardis, which is the Reformation Church from about 1500 on, and then you get the revival churches, the Philadelphia church from the Great Awakening in 1750 onward, even to the present day. And then you have Laodicea, the apostate church, which starts maybe in 1900, uh, modernism creeping in and so all those problems and so on. So the, the church that is uh, neither hot nor cold, lukewarm and so on. So that's a fun one to do. I've been guilty of doing it. Uh, and yet when you come right down to it... Um, it's interesting, but I don't know, is it personally useful? Uh, I'd, I'd rather kind of find our church in the existing list there someplace and not worry about the history. Uh, you know, let's just be sure we're not Laodicea. I guess that's the main thing. So. That's the church, as I, somebody said, that's the church will, that will still have a ministry after the rapture. That's the idea. They'll still be here. <clears throat> anyway. But here's, here's something we have to consider besides this. Every one of these churches is, uh, letters rather, is addressed to the angel of the church of. So what does that mean? And uh, we could spend a good hour on that. Um, when, I, when I did my uh, thesis for my doctorate, uh, this is one of the things I considered because my thesis was about corporate spirituality. And really the origin of that, in my thinking, comes from these letters to the angels of the seven churches. Every church has a personality. Now I've served, so this is now, I served five churches in my 45 years with the North American Baptist. When I was in seminary, I was at a couple of churches for quite a while. I was at a Methodist church on the east side of Sioux Falls for two years. Uh, Pat and I were working with the youth group there. And this is my sixth interim. So I've been at a lot of different churches. And uh, in, within the North American Baptist denomination, 
uh, where, where I spent 45 years, I, I came to this conclusion. The churches are a lot like cats. They're all the same, and they're all different. Those of you who have cats know what I mean. Uh, there are certain things that they had in common. Uh, North American Baptist churches come from the German background. Um, NAB, North American Baptist, is very much like uh, the Baptist General Conference now Converge, except they come from the Swedish background, and the Germans, uh, most of whom came from Russia, um, were much more conservative when it came to personal things. I'm not talking about politics here. I'm just talking about trying new things. Mm, no, we don't try new things. Whereas the Swedes are much more open to that, and so in 1952, the North American Baptist Conference had 62,000 members in the United States and Canada. The Baptist General Conference had 62,000 members in the U.S. and Canada. And I think that Converge is now up to about 300,000, and the North American Baptists are still at 62,000. So there's a conservative element. We don't like change. We don't like to take risks in the NAB. I don't know if that sounds Berean or not. I don't know enough about Bereans yet to come to that judgment. But um, that's, a, that's a corporate aspect to a church. Yet they're all different. They all have peculiarities. Um, I, I think I shared this uh, somewhere along the line. But it's worth doing again. Um, what's his name? It doesn't matter. Anyway, one of the, one of the, uh, uh, the guys who's spoken at IPM conferences, and it'll come to me in a minute, says, said this, all, all small churches are weird. <laughs> and they're all weird in a different way. And that's, that's because of statistical things. If you go to a big church, once you get to a, a thousand people or so, you've got a pretty good broad sample of the general population in the area. And if there's any nutters, as they say in, in Great Britain, within that congregation, they're balanced off by the number of people who aren't, okay? So, so that they're no more peculiar than the general population. But you come to a smaller church, between 100, you know, anywhere from 50 to 200 or so, you don't have a sample you have a group of peculiar people and you may have a couple of really peculiar people and they flavor the whole thing. It's like, just like popping hot peppers into the chili. It only takes a couple of them to make it uneatable. So doesn't that make sense? All small churches are weird and they're all weird in a different way. So there's a corporate aspect and every one of these seven churches has something in common. They, they're all, in, the, in Revelation, they're all churches that, that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe that, that he was the son of God. They, they believe he died for their sins and he rose and ascended. They believed in the essentials. But they're all weird and they're all weird in a different way. And so they had strengths and they had weaknesses. I, I've used this illustration too, but I've used it with you. So I was in Detroit, as you know, for 15 years. You learned a lot about Detroit. And while I was there, you had the big three. And in, in, the, in Gross Point Baptist Church, there were a lot of people who worked for Ford, others for General Motors, and some for Chrysler. And I, I learned by observation. I, I did a Bible study for, for about two years, as a matter of fact, at the uh, Ford offices, which are downtown, which is now where GM has its offices, uh, in the Rensen, and got to know some people in middle management at Ford, and, and I, I could tell you this is true with Ford. Ford Motor Company is characterized by the desire to build good automobiles. And along the way, sometimes they make money. General Motors exists to make money. Along the way, they sometimes build good automobiles. 
and Chrysler, the Chrysler Motor Corporation at the time uh, was, well, and by the way, so the Ford guys wore Brooks Brothers suits and button-down collars. And the GM guys would wear dark suits and white shirts without the buttons on them, and always ties, you know, and black shoes. And the Chrysler guys wore sports shirts with plastic pocket protectors, <laughs> pencils in them. And they're engineers, and, and Chrysler was existed to do cutting-edge engineering and frequently put things on the streets that weren't ready yet. That's, that was the problem with Chrysler. That's all gone now, of course, in terms of corporate personality because Fiat now owns Chrysler, so you don't have that. And I think GM and Ford have morphed a little bit along the way too. But it was really true that there was a, you could tell a Ford guy, a GM guy, a Chrysler guy, just by talking to him for a little while because they, they were involved in, in some different things. And it's, it, what's true in the corporate world is true, I think, for churches. As soon as you get a group of people together, something is going on there that's more than the individual. And you cannot help but be affected by it once you become part of that group, whether it's a, a, a bigger culture like a big corporation or a subculture like a, like a small denomination. We are a peculiar people. And the Lord Jesus is addressing that peculiarity. I believe this is, you don't have to buy into this in order, in order to have this benefit, but you don't have to buy this. But I think Jesus is talking to the angel of the church in this sense. To the corporate character of the church, which isn't a literary device. This is, an, this is a reality. There really is a corporate spirit to the church. It's not something you can pin down or necessarily draw a picture of, but you can, talk, you can start talking about the characteristics. So, And we're seeing this with the MIT survey that we took. Uh, we can see strengths and weaknesses there. So we're going to try to do the same thing with this. There, there's a, a need here to understand this. The... the, the effect of directing each of these messages to the angel of the church rather than to all the churches at the same time is that the angel serves as kind of a buffer between Jesus and the individuals that make up the church. Uh, you, you can be part of a congregation, a cultural congregation that has some problems and not partake of that and in fact be a corrective to that, Okay. Or you can come into a, into a healthy situation, a spiritually healthy situation, and, uh, and if you've got some problems, that, that situation become, can become healing for you. And then worst case scenario, you can come in with all your problems and mess the place up. You can, be, you can be, become that nutter that makes that, that congregation weird in not a very good way. Uh, illustration of the upside of this, though, um, of what the corporate culture does would be the church I served in Chicago Forest Park Baptist Church um, we talked here about one of our problems is that uh, people don't know we're here that's one of the things that came out of the MIT right? we don't, people don't know where this church is they know you you're, you're, a lot of you are known in the community and surrounding area but they don't know where Brian is um, everybody knew where Forest Park Baptist Church was I'd run into people all over the place, and I would say, I'm at Forest Park Baptist. The time. When I got there, there was only 70 people coming on Sunday mornings, all of them over the age of 70. That was in 1980. But people would say, oh, yeah, I know that church. It's on Harlem Avenue, two blocks south of the L Station, the Harlem Avenue L Station. They knew. I ran into people in Detroit, Michigan, who knew where Forest Park Baptist Church was. I ran into people all over the place who would say, you know what? I got saved in that church back in 1949 or 1956 or whatever. And I, but man, that church had had an impact. 
That church had a, had a, a reputation of being a church that made people well. And so well, I, the, during the time I was there, a lot of good things happened. One of those things that happened that was kind of a side issue, but that was good, were people coming from these hyper-fundamentalist congregations that were run by autocratic pastors who were, had just destroyed them and trying to run their lives and making them feel guilty all the time and so on. And they came to Forest Park Baptist because they were just shattered. And then they heard this guy up front, you know, and he's preaching the gospel just like they were used to, but nobody was telling them that they were had to change everything they were doing. I, the classic case was the couple who came, and um, they had a daughter who had graduated from Moody. And that after she graduated, she met this Jewish guy, not a Jewish Christian, a Jewish guy, and fell, fell in love with him, they got married. And the pastor of their church called this couple in, and they said, well, your daughter's been excommunicated from the church, and, and you have to... You, you know, you have to give up your Sunday school teaching position. The, the husband, he had to leave the, the trustee board. He said, you, you can no longer serve as officers in this church or as leaders. You can have no ministry here because you've, you've failed. You have a daughter who married a Jew. And furthermore, you can have no contact with your daughter. No phone calls, no visits. She's no longer welcome in your home. Well, would you put up with that, by the way? I, I wouldn't. No, you shouldn't put up with that. You ever get a pastor that does that, you kick that pastor out because he's gone nuts. But they put up with it because this is what they were used to. This is their culture. The culture of that church was the pastor is the boss. He tells us how we've sinned. He punishes us for how we've sinned. We say, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. That's what we do. This lasted until the first grandbaby came along. And grandma said, finally, she woke up one morning and said, this is crazy. I need to see my granddaughter. And so they started coming to Forest Park Baptist, and it was an eye-opening experience that you could be with born-again, Bible-believing people who didn't condemn you every time you turned around. It was a healthy place to be. They, they came to Forest Park Baptist to get well. Isn't that a good culture to have? They came into a culture, and, but the problem is that they brought some of that legalism with them. And there were there's more than one occasion when we had to sit down together and we had to turn to the book of Galatians because they had a list of rules and expectations. And we had these pe- people coming in like the gal who came in with the piercings and the, and the pink hair, for example. And, and Pastor, are you going to let her come to this church without changing, her changing her hair color back to normal? And I said, well, I'm trying to think of the chapter and verse that says you can't have pink hair. I couldn't, I couldn't come up with one. And, uh, and by the way, um, after a while, uh, she started dating a guy from Moody who was our youth guy, and, and uh, they got married, and I guess she's, she drives a minivan now and has normal hair and has three or four kids. <laughs> Just give them time, you know? They'll figure it out. Um, but that's, that was a healthy culture. So we're talking about, about culture. And that's what Jesus is addressing, I think. Now, some people say, well, he's talking about to the pastor of the church. Well, maybe... But there's a perfectly good Greek word for pastor. And it's not used here. Angelos is used, the angel of the church. And this is a different kind of angel than you meet any place else in the Bible because it's a messenger of God, but it's got problems. So I think, it's, I think corporate culture is a good way to understand it. In any case, whether that's the angel or not, I think you'd have to agree there is such a thing as a corporate culture. And all small churches are weird, and they're all weird in a different way. So part of what we're doing here with this exercise is we're trying to find out exactly how it is that we're weird. 
So we're going to walk through this. The, the, the page that I want you to look at uh, is the, the one that's just one-sided, the listening to Jesus one. The other stuff is just extra material for you uh, to kind of help you understand what the passage says. And then at one point, right at the beginning, as a matter of fact, uh, you're going to want to pick a, the name Jesus would use for this church. And in case you're, you're wondering how many of them there are, this isn't even all of them that are in the Bible. Okay, and I know you need a magnifying glass to look at it. I'm not necessarily even saying you have to pick one of these. Because you might have something else that will come to you that would be appropriate. We'll get to that in a minute. But I wanted to give you a list so you're thinking, okay, what's he talking about? All right, every one of these letters to the churches follows the same pattern. Uh in, in my research into this for my doctorate, I discovered something very interesting, that the pattern that is followed is the one that was used for imperial letters. If a, government, a governor was writing a letter to a particular city council, for example, this is the pattern that he would use. So they, they, this is something that's interesting. Jesus was using a, a cultural norm, a template, if you will, and assuming the position of the governor. Well, since he's king of kings and lord of lords, I guess that's his right. Okay, So it starts out by addressing the place. To the angel of the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church at Thyatira and Pergamum and so on. All seven times. There is a location for every congregation. There may be several churches in the city. They have a peculiar neighborhood. That location says something about that church. There is a context in which we live. We don't operate in a cultural vacuum. We have an impact on the cities where we are, and in turn, the cities have an impact on us. The North American Baptist, German Baptist, were uh, from a pietistic tradition because so many of them came from Russia. And their church polity, as a matter of fact, was brethren. They had been uh, greatly impacted by their uh, interactions with the Plymouth Brethren. So they had a lot of strong lay leadership, and they were very pietistic. Uh, I grew up in in an environment where you didn't drink, uh, you didn't smoke, you didn't play cards, you didn't go to movies, you didn't go to dances, and so on. Saved me a lot of money in dating, I tell you that. <laughs> Didn't have to worry about the prom and all that stuff. So I, I don't think I missed anything. I got the prettiest girl in high school, too. And so She's upstairs right now. She can't hear me. That's good. Uh, uh, we, we, we are going to be impacted by our environment, and I was impacted by that. And yet, there are North American Baptist churches in Northern California where they grow grapes and they drink wine. Isn't that interesting? How did you go from a pietist to becoming an expert on wine? Because you grow wine grapes and that's your livelihood. It's a little bit like the Amish out in eastern Pennsylvania, in Lancaster County, where they grow tobacco. One of their big cash crops out there is tobacco. And guess what? Those, those good pietistic Amish guys have a clay pipe in their mouth most of the time. So they get affected by their culture. Of course we get affected by our culture. Uh, sometimes that's a really bad thing and sometimes it's kind of indifferent, but you understand 
um, we, we're very much affected by our contemporary music culture. We, we don't sing uh, 15th, 16th century hymn tunes much anymore. You know, the old hymnals didn't have music in them, if you go back far enough. You know that, right? It was just words. Because everybody knew about two dozen hymn tunes. And the hymn tunes themselves had different names from the hymns. And you could pick a tune, and it would fit the meter of the verses, and you'd sing along with that. That was the old way of doing things. And in fact, uh, up until about the 18th century, what was in the hymn book were psalms, translated into English and set to meter. Isaac Watts said to his father, who was a pastor in the Anglican church, I'm tired of singing these same songs to these same tunes week after week after week. And his father said, if you think you can do better, do it. So the next Sunday he produced a hymn and they sang it and people liked it. And he wrote one hymn a week for the rest of his life. There's a lot of Isaac Watts's hymns that we never sing. He liked to versify things. He used to talk to his father in rhyme all the time. His father gave him a paddling one time. And he begged. He said, uh, Father, if thou wilt mercy take, I will no more, no more verses make. He was about eight years old when he did that. So he had a gift for making rhyme. But he, Isaac Watts changed our hymn culture. But no, we don't sing Isaac Watts anymore. So, okay, we sing other stuff. Hillsong and all kinds of other stuff. And so we've been affected by our, <clears throat> our, I don't know, pop culture, rock culture, whatever, even rap culture. You can do that if you want. When are we going to start doing rap here? Come on, get with Never. it. Never. That's what I thought. Where we live, how does our physical environment either assist or challenge our spiritual lives in our church ministries. What, are, what opportunities are here? What barriers are there? And we live in a changing world, so this is, a, this is like trying to nail jello to a wall because things keep changing. Um, we, we're, we're living in a time of radical change. I, I just heard, uh, disturbingly, um, in West St. Paul, uh, one of the gals at church is a para. And so she's got a half a dozen kids that she works with. And every day, she has to ask these children which pronoun they would like to be addressed with. And she has to remember it. If she doesn't remember it, guess what happens? She's done. She's violated them. Would you want your kid, by the way, to be in that environment? They need some special attention, whatever. I said to Pat, I said, that, that's it. If I had a kid in school, that would be the end of West St. Paul because they're brainwashing my kid, teaching them, Lies that you can you can be whoever you want to be. You know, folks, when I was growing up, I really wanted to play basketball. And it suddenly dawned on me, I may be going on 77 years of age, but there's no reason in the world why I can't be a seven foot four inch Chinese woman and pay, play in the Women's National Basketball Association. What do you think? Can I shouldn't I shouldn't I go for it? And yet this is actually why not? Right? This is part of our cultural environment. I don't know what it's like here, but obviously in West St. Paul, you've got some challenges if your kids are going to public school. So I know Riverview Baptist has been a place that basically hosts homeschool, you know, the, the, the science labs and the, the kind of stuff you really can't do at home because there's so many people that are dropping out of that. This is kind of fun, by the way. Up there, there's two 
uh, Lutheran schools. One of them's Missouri Synod, and the other one's Wisconsin Synod. And you know about Wisconsin Synod, by the way. They don't even think the Missouri Synod people are saved. I mean, they're really... And, they, and people are... All kinds of people are sending their kids to these really conservative Christian schools because they want to get out of that mess. So that would be something that... Is there that kind of stuff going on? What's going on? This is just something you need to think about. What are, what are the challenges? What are the opportunities that are presented by our environment? Uh, that's, that's certainly something that, that affected um, the churches that are addressed here. And Laodicea famously had two springs. One was a hot spring where people went to bathe because you got a hot water, a limitless hot water, and that had an overflow and that would run down the hill. And nearby was a cold spring where people went to get drinking water. And there was a point at which those two streams ran together. So thou art neither hot nor cold, thou art lukewarm. If you scoop some of that water that's running down that one stream and you taste it and it's lukewarm, you go, that's bath water. And you spit it out of your mouth, right? So that was a way of thinking that had entered the church by way of their local culture. So you think, think about that one. I, I want you to think about this, pray about this, and come up with an answer. What are the characteristics of our community? How does our physical, cultural environment either assist or challenge our spiritual lives and our church ministries? Secondly, Jesus has a name for himself. He reminds us who he is, and he's got different titles that he uses for himself in each one of these seven churches. These titles express something important that each church needed to know about Jesus. Sometimes the name that he used for himself was in itself an evaluation and a corrective. For example, what does he call himself to the church at Ephesus? Let's go back to that. He says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, what are the seven golden lampstands? Do you, you recall this? Churches. They're the churches. Yeah, these are the seven churches. So he's saying... He holds the seven stars and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. The stars are the angels of the churches. The lampstands are the churches themselves. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I hold these churches in my hand and I walk among all seven of them. What do we know about the church at Ephesus? Who was its founder? The Apostle Paul, right? When... Um, John, the beloved disciple, had to leave Palestine because of the persecution. Who did he bring with him? Do you remember? What did Jesus say from the cross? Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. He brought Mary with him. Where did he go? He went to Ephesus. So this is the church that had the apostle Paul as its founder. It had the beloved disciple John as one of its elders. And Mary, the Lord's mother, was in charge of the Women's Missionary Society. <laughs> I don't think you get a better pedigree than that from a church that isn't in Jerusalem. That's a pretty good pedigree. And Jesus said, <clears throat> I am he who walks among the seven golden lampstands. They thought they were it. I think that's a problem. They were so good. They had such a solid pedigree, such a terrific background. They were kind of on the top. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm also over here, and I'm over here, and I'm over here, and I'm over here. Uh, this is, amongst a lot of fundamentals churches, absolutely heresy, what I'm saying right now. Do you believe that Jesus can work in a Presbyterian church? Of course he can. 
Can he work? Can he even work in the United Methodist Church? Of course he can. He's got his faithful people everywhere. There are, there are broken-hearted United Methodist pastors watching what's happened to their denomination and dropping out like crazy. Look what's happened in the Lutheran Church. So we've got Lutheran churches on mission for Christ instead of ELCA churches. But there are born-again people still in ELCA. Jesus is working everywhere. I, I can't explain how it is you can be a Roman Catholic and come to Christ and stay in the Roman Catholic Church, but I know Roman Catholics are doing just that. Maybe because they're missionaries. I don't know. I know. I, I, there are some fundamentalist friends of mine said fraud that the mouse did it. So you can't do that. You can't do that. I don't know. It's not my business to judge somebody else's servant. That would be quite a challenge to do that. Let's put it this way. Even Roman Catholicism is a pretty big tent. And there's all kinds of ranges of beliefs and motions in, in, it, in that uh, congregation. So maybe he needs to remind us. Maybe we're the kind of church that needs to be run. You know what? I'm not, this isn't the only place where the action is. It's all over the place because I am present in my churches. I've got my people everywhere, basically. And that's kind of a fun thing to find out. I enjoyed being in Spencer, Iowa for a year because they really have a cooperative spirit amongst the churches. So you've got... Um, Evangelical Free Church, and you've got this Independent Baptist Church, is where I was, and you've got you know the, the mainline church, a Reformed Church, which is pretty good, not so much mainline, but then some of the real mainline ones. And you know, it's kind of neat to get together with some of those pastors and lady pastors and so on, who you kind of wonder what in the world this is all about, and and have a witness to them. Um, in, in Gross Point, somebody challenged me in the church one time: How can you go to that pastors' meeting? in Gross Point, with all those liberal mainline pastors. I said, who else is going to lead those guys to the Lord? <laughs> well, I said, are you going to go? Are you going to have a Christian witness to those guys? One of those guys said to me one time, Dave, I don't understand it, how you can be so bigoted about these sexual matters and, and, and be such a liberal on racial matters. And I said, well, it's because I'm a believer, because the sexual stuff is sinful. And, and uh, you know, being a different color isn't a matter of sin. It's just the way you were born. Oh, well, okay. I don't know if I shed any light for him. But that's what I was there for, to say that kind of stuff. Be called a bigot. That's fine. So Jesus reminds us, what name would Jesus use for himself for Hastings Berean Bible Church? What do we need to know about him? And whatever you think. doesn't have to come from this list, Okay that I gave you, whatever. So you think about that. Now, um, we get to the stuff that's a little easier to talk about. Six of the seven churches get some kind of commendation from Jesus for various aspects of their faith and work. So this isn't that tough to start thinking about this. pretty concrete. What are we doing well? For what would Jesus commend us? How, How are we making him happy what, what gives him joy as he looks at this congregation? What's good about this place? And so think about that. I, I think that's, that's probably going to be, I can just guess right now some of the things that are going to be said. But, you know, because this is a church that preaches the word, teaches the Bible. We, you know, we believe the right stuff here. And that makes Jesus happy. He likes it when his children are walking in the truth. I think we have good values here and so on. So I shouldn't be giving you the answers, but you put down what you think. What's good about this place? Then there's a commendation. I mean, there's condemnation. So there's also correction. So Jesus offers words of correction. I 
I say condemnation. That's a little strong because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. So I think I've got it right. I've, in my notes, I've got condemnation. On the paper, it says correction. So how would he correct us? What are some problems? Uh, let's start with the bad stuff, sin. What is being tolerated here that Jesus finds abominable and intolerable? Um, I probably, I don't know you well enough to, to care whether I step on your toes. So I'll say, <laughs> of course I care. I, I, don't, I don't want to rattle your cage, but I, but I think we need to be honest here. I'm, a few years ago, I'm at a pastor's meeting, and it just popped into my head to say this. I said, when was the last time you guys did a wedding for a couple in your church where they hadn't already been living together? Stony silence. I said, yeah, me too. And then the question comes up, why are we tolerating this? Well, the first answer is we don't know. <laughs> we don't find out until after they've, they've applied to get married in the church that, wait a minute, they both have the same address. <laughs> What's going on here? I mean, I'm not, you know, so I'm not one of these independent fundamentalist pastors that snoop it into people's lives to find out where they're living. So that's one of the reasons, and I'm not suggesting we start doing that, but, you know, there needs to be a correction. Um, and God bless the guy who took my place, Joel. There was a, there's a gal who was, you know, she was little when I was there, but anyway, she, she grew up, and she's a pretty girl, and, and uh, she starts dating this guy. And, and, and you know, unbeknownst to, to the pastor and anybody in the church, they're living together. Uh, what a shock. And uh, they come and want to get married, and, and then Joel realizes this. And he said, you know, he said, I really need you guys to move apart. Now, part of me says, you know what? You can't reestablish virginity. So let's just have a wedding and get this, you know, that's kind of how my, but he's, he's a pro, I want you guys to live apart until you got your wedding day picked six months from now. And you know, she started to cry. And she said, I wish somebody had called us out on this a long time ago. And he was right with her on that. He said, yeah, we haven't really felt good about what we're doing. Well, some people are just waiting to be called out on their sin. Are there, is there sin that we're tolerating? And this is such a tough one. And we're getting, I, I, I've run into this. Well, you know, we, yeah, we believe that homosexual behavior is a sin. But, you know, one of our cousins is, what? So what? But if it's in the family or if it's a son or daughter, all of a sudden it's Okay. What's, you know, what's up with that? Um, I can tell you that in Michigan, one of the things that was tolerated was shady business dealings. Uh, you know, business is business. And if you can make money, sometimes you cut some corners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are plenty of guys there, by the way, who weren't that way. But there was some, that, and, they, and it was tolerated. Um, some of this, somebody said this, that one guy could never figure out this is my chance to rant about things, but I could never figure out this one guy who, um, I mean, he would run these scams. So you can start a company and, and attract investors and then pay yourself a good salary and then have the whole thing go south and the investors lose all their money, and that's perfectly legal as long as you set it up right. Did you know that? You probably did that. He had this deal where uh, he had a defense contract that he said he had lined up and they were going to build tank turrets down in Mexico for the Defense Department. And uh, he had this Mexican general that came up to Detroit, and he was taking people out to dinner, and uh, he got all kinds of money out of Gross Point Baptist Church. And he was a member. He, was, he had been a deacon, as a matter of fact. And then the whole thing went belly up. And people lost, some people lost all of their retirement savings because they weren't all well-to-do people there. 
they lost everything to this. And then he went on to the next thing. When I, when I got there, he, was, he said, you know, there's a window of opportunity here because um, uh, was it, I think it was Honda is going out of the business of making the little gas engines for the $100 lawnmower. That would be the $200 lawnmower, the cheap one that they sell every spring. It only lasts for a year. But he said, I've got a new carburetor that'll work great, and we're going to build these little one-cylinder gas engines. And, and Dave, you can get on the ground floor, and uh, it's, it's $1,000 a share. I said, Al, I don't have $1,000. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. He said, can you borrow it? I said, no, I'm not borrowing money to make a speculative investment, no. He said, he said that's why you'll never be rich. That's what he told me. That's why you'll never be rich. So I asked one of the new, newer members there, and, and, and this fellow ran, uh, Al ran a Bible study for men. And people came to the Lord through the Bible study. I asked one of the guys, Pete, that I'd baptized. I said, Pete, what do you think about Al's investments? He said, Dave, I'm so grateful that Al had that Bible study and I came to know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. But when I meet together with Al, I leave my wallet and my checkbook at home. (laughs) And we tolerated that guy. And I'm as guilty as anybody else. We should have run him out of the church. You think? And he kept doing it right up until the day he died. He didn't see anything wrong with it. Let the buyer leave. He said, Dave, if you read the prospectus, which is 14 pages long in eight-point type, he tells you eight or ten times on every page that you can lose all your money. He tells you to your face how much money you're going to make, but the prospectus, by, your, by the time you're done, has told you 12 dozen times you could lose all your money. A perspective that reads like that, what does that mean? You're going to lose all your money, right? He said, actually, in some ways, he's perfectly honest if you read the prospectus, but people don't bother. Uh, they've they got this Christian brother who's got this way and they can double or triple their money in no time, so why not? Because you can't double or triple your money. It doesn't work that way. That's a correction. That would be an example. Are we tolerating dishonesty? Are we tolerating immorality? Is there immorality in your life that needs to be healed? And you know There needs to be repentance and it needs to go away. Is there, what is it? Is it anger? Is it, uh, is it some kind of bigotry? Is it whatever? Let's be honest about this. Let's get this stuff out because Jesus is grieved by our sin and by the stuff that we tolerate. And we're not going to get anywhere until we deal with that. Number one, top of the agenda is dealing with sin, making sure there's repentance. And You know, how how do we know if our personal secret sin isn't holding the whole congregation back? I don't say, I'm not saying it is because God is very gracious and merciful and good, but it might be. He might be waiting on you to repent and give something up that's not good for you because it's not good for the church either. So this is, let's be honest. Where would Jesus correct us? That's probably the biggest thing. It's good to feel good and hear the commendation. It's also very important that we get the correction. All right, now, next up, Jesus wants us to continue in those things for which he has commended us. Do them even better. And then to do these things in order to correct our shortcomings. In other words, if there's something that needs to be repented of. What do we need to do about it? Uh, does there need to be some restoration? Do we need to go to somebody else and ask for their forgiveness? Does there need to be public repentance? I, I'm not telling there does, but do you think so? What is Jesus telling you about that? What starts a revival? <coughs> what starts a revival is repentance. That's where it starts. And once you start it, it's really hard to stop because people have a lot on their conscience. Churches have a lot on their conscience. You see what you're doing wrong, you turn it around, and all of a sudden, it's like the fire falls from heaven. 
and then people start coming to the Lord. Uh, during the, the wonderful year of 1984 at Forest Park Baptist Church, there were more people coming to prayer meeting on Wednesday night than were coming to church on Sunday morning. And every Wednesday night, people were standing up and, and re repenting of sin and confessing sin. And sometimes I had to say, too much detail. <laughs> too much information. We don't need to hear the specifics of that. Okay, but we appreciate your openness and transparency. And, and you know, people are clustering in little groups. This is a, this is a revival. And, you know, I, don't you long for the days when prayer meetings better attended in the morning worship service? What does that say? That says that God is doing something. So that's what we're looking for here. What do we need to do? Uh, maybe there's something constructive that we need to do in terms of, of outreach or a program or something, too. That's the other thing. Maybe we need to build something into the structure here that makes things go back. I don't know. Just what do you think Jesus is saying to you? And then let's be honest. What can we expect if we fail to repent? Because that's what Jesus does in every one of these letters. Unless you repent, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick from its place. You're going to be gone. So, by the way, how many of these seven churches in Asia Minor exist today? Not one of them. No, they all got obliterated by the spread of Islam. They didn't make it. So it kind of tells you in the long run, <laughs> maybe they didn't respond as they should have. And, and here's the deal. Probably there was a good response, and then it needs to happen again. Remember what Billy Sunday said? People tell me revival doesn't last. He said, they're right, but neither does a bath. It does you good, though. So revival has to be something that gets repeated over. This is just the first round of revival. Maybe somewhere down the road they failed and, and uh, didn't come back, and their candlestick got removed. So, but what if we repent and are obedient? Because Jesus also says that. To the overcomers, he says, I promise, whatever. Blessing would be there. So I want you to prayerfully, prayerfully, prayerfully consider each one of these things and fill this out. This is what we're going to talk about next week. That's why we're starting at 9 o'clock next week, so we have more time to share. And if we don't hear yours, because we won't have time to hear everybody's, you can at least turn it in. Turn in your homework, and don't tell me the dog ate it, because I don't believe that one. Okay? <laughs> Bring it in, and, and there are those that aren't here this morning that wanted to be here, and uh, we'll just... We're going to put it out over the, uh, we're, we're going to send it out with a blast email so everybody has a copy and they, they can also pray about this and bring it in. They didn't really need this necessarily as long as they followed the direction. So there's one more thing. Are we done with time here? Perfect. We've got a couple minutes. One more thing. And next week's interactive, so it's not a lecture. We'll just hear what you have to say. Oh, so what are we going to do with this? Um, we'll take all of your input. And then I will generate a letter from Jesus to the church in Hastings, okay, to the Berean Bible Church in Hastings. So, the, the, the one more thing. Remember Columbo? One more thing. Just one more thing. Um, does this really work? The forgotten doctrine, I think, amongst us evangelicals, is, is the doctrine of illumination. Illumination is what happens when you listen to a sermon, you're in a Bible study group, um, you read a Christian book, and especially when you read Scripture. This is the inspired Word of God. We believe this, right? God gave this Word through how many different human authors, about 40, something like that, over 1,500 years. And it's all true. It's the Word of God. Then, 
He helps us understand it. That's illumination. You, you, you listen to a sermon. If, it's, if the Holy Spirit is present in the preaching and in your heart, you hear something. It isn't just listening to a lecture and getting information. This isn't just reading information and learning Bible facts. This is a supernatural encounter between the Holy Spirit who inspired the writer and you who reads what the writer wrote. Something That's the doctrine of illumination. You believe that? That is sound Christian doctrine. This has been believed. But I think sometimes we get so information-oriented, it's just about knowledge. I have more Bible knowledge now. You see, if I read the Bible, I get Bible knowledge. Bible knowledge never saved anybody unless it led them to Jesus. What did Jesus tell the Pharisees? You search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but you refuse to come to me. I am the life. The whole point of reading scripture is to meet the living Jesus. This is the living word of God, the word of God that is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So I'm just telling, I'm just reminding you of something I think you know. I don't think it's emphasized enough. Something supernatural happens every time you sit down to read the Bible as a believer and you ask for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. I want you to be very mindful of that this week. As you read, prayerfully be listening. What is Jesus actually saying? Now, the safeguard here is that we're going to be listening to a lot of people's listening, okay? <laughs> so that if, if you hear something nutty, uh, it's not really Jesus, okay? There'll be some corrective. The other safeguard always is Jesus is not going to tell you something that disagrees with anything he's already revealed, ever, right? That's our check, they, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the information stays the same. The application is different because it's in your heart. That's specific to you, and that, that's the illumination part. But, you know, some people come up with some weird ideas sometimes, and it's not, that's not, that's, that's just their imagination. Illumination is not your imagination. It's something that's really happening. Um, just a caveat there, a word of warning. What I, I'm not talking about people who say, Jesus told me. Jesus told me to tell you this. Uh-oh. The voices are talking to you? Hmm. You, need to, you maybe need to see a doctor, if that's what you think. A woman up at our church up in Riverview one time, <clears throat> was a lady who was pregnant, she was having trouble. And there was really some doubt. I think she was in about her fifth or sixth month about whether or not the baby was going to make it. This woman comes up to her and says, the Lord gave me a word. The baby's going to be born and be just fine. And two weeks later, the woman had a miscarriage, and of course the baby was dead. Was that a word from the Lord? No. And uh, did we tolerate that? Well, I don't know. Somebody, I think my wife might have called her out. But that's blasphemy. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. To say, the Lord told me to tell you this, when the Lord didn't, and it's just that you're in your, in your imagination. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Not when you hit your thumb with a hammer. It's when you say something on behalf of Jesus that he never said. That's serious. Don't. That's not what we're talking about here. So that's the caveat. I mean, really, really... What are the impressions that you're getting from the Word? What you know, you you know what Jesus wants is is that happening here? Is he happy with some of the things he sees? Is he not happy with other things? Is there some sin here that needs to be repented of? Is this clear? I'm not talking about something, some nutty, far out, charismatic thing going on here. I'm talking about good, sound Christian doctrine. 
but but sometimes we're so careful we're not realizing something supernatural is going on when we read God's word. So be praying, pray about this, pray about each one of these points. And I think the Lord's going to open up some eyes. This has been a good experience when I've done this in several places. We did this in Michigan. And when we did it a little different, um, we sent people out. We met on with, a, I think there was about two dozen of us, of the church leaders. And we went out, we had a big building, and uh, we went out all over the building, and they were out there for about 90 minutes, just praying and, and filling this out. And then they came back. And uh, something very strange happened. Everybody had the same things, except they had different names for Jesus. The other things were all the same. What kind of community do we live in? Everybody said the same thing. We're in a community that if it looks good, it is good. It's all about surface. Everybody said the same thing. That's the gross promise. It has to look good. And then that was one of the things that was a problem for the church. As long as it looks good, we don't really care what's going on under the surface. And they knew that was a sin. We need to change that and so on. So we went right and every, we got about halfway through this thing. It was like the lights were getting brighter. It's like, you know what? Jesus really was talking to us when we went apart. I hope we have the same experience here. That there's something that's going to go on here that the Lord Jesus is going to speak to this congregation. And we're going to hear it as his voice, as his word, and as his direction. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we, we believe that you are the risen Lord. We, we meet you in the pages of Scripture. We meet you in our daily walk. We sense through your Holy Spirit your presence in our lives. This is all real stuff that we're talking about. And Lord, we, we long to hear from you. We long to hear uh, who you are to us in that special way, that special name that you would have for us. We, we long to hear your words of commendation, to be encouraged and, and strengthened to continue to do what's right. And Lord, although we tremble at your word, we also long to be corrected for Holy Spirit, we, we don't want to grieve you. Uh, the, the good that we would do, we don't do. And the evil that we would not do, we do. And, and there is no health in us. And maybe <clears throat> we've been so deaf to that conviction, we've, we've developed a callus over our conscience. And this, this is a week where that, that's going to be melted away and we're going to become sensitive to the work of your Holy Spirit and guiding us, Lord, strengthening us to, to want, want to repent and want to change and do what's right. And Heavenly Father, ask help us to understand what it is that you want us to do specifically. And Lord, the blessings that are in store for us, if we do. And Lord, we ask these favors, not for our sake, but for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, go get them.